Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the 135th edition of the Frank and Stan Chat. And uh, I'm delighted to say that we have another guest with us today. It's uh, Peter Wright. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hi, Frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to just say what you do, Peter? Not in detail, because we'll come back to that in a minute. But what sort of role have you got at the moment? Yeah, sure. No, I've got a few a few hats on. Uh, so I teach ancient history and classical civilization at uh, Blackpool Sixth Form College. Uh, I also coordinate our High Achievers program, which gives students a platform for making applications to competitive universities and apprenticeships. And I also coordinate the teaching of Latin and Greek in several Blackpool primary and secondary schools. Wow. And I, and I think that's something we're going to dig into a little bit later. So anyway, how are you, Stan? I'm okay. I, I, I do this every so often, Frank, where I turn it around and say, well, how about you? Because you ask me every week how I am. I, well, I never okay. seem to ask you back. Right. You well, it's not, it's not a great week, I have to say. Um, my uh, daughter, um, Philippa, um, is expecting her second child. Um, she has uh, a number of underlying health conditions, and she, I think, is just coming out of um, hospital today, having been there for four days um she's 31 weeks pregnant and uh they're going to try and keep the baby going until 34 35 keep it as long as possible um but also you will know barry my brother uh former hmi in wales um he is very ill at the moment and he is in swansea hospital so uh um, my thoughts are with both of them um and uh i'm sure philip will be fine i hope barry you know gives it every shot to you know because um, yeah. he's, a, he's a great guy and uh, has been a fantastic brother, but also a great guest on here. Been fantastic. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I think, Stan, you said that if you'd met Barry before me, you would have probably preferred him than me. Yeah, I'd, he'd have been a better mate than you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a, a, a funny, funny time. But um, anyway, let's, let's, let's move on. Um, so, Peter, um, Latin. Where did all that start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Rome, I would have thought. Uh, yeah. 2,000 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, obviously, I, I mean, I, I studied sort of classical history uh, and, and Latin at university. And then, um, so I've been teaching at the Blackpool Sixth Form since 2006, um, running the ancient history and the classical civilization courses. Is it popular, which, that course? Yeah, really popular, really popular. I think we've got one of the biggest groups in the country, uh, but we every year we have always between sort of 110, 130 oh, students. My, really? That yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's just, I think it's because it's just something a little bit new and a little bit different. Um, and you're also using your previous sort of historical knowledge. Um, mm. But I think the real, the real brilliance of looking at classical history um in in translation is that you can link it to any subject area that you're interested in so amongst our say typical cohort of 120 students we'll have students that are looking at med medical entry they're doing biology and chemistry and doing ancient history we'll have artists that are doing ancient history we'll have obviously the historians and and i'm pretty pretty confident in saying that amongst our cohort we'll we'll have had every other subject at the college selected with ancient history as a combination. So it's one of those that whatever interests you bring to the table, you're always going to find something to hook you. 
but also it, I think it just opens your eyes to the environment that you're in. You know, even the, typically you're, you know, you're thinking of Blackpool, well, there can't be too many Roman things around Blackpool, but then as soon as you start opening the eyes of the students to obviously local sites, but also the architecture of the town that they live in um, and, and the links to the history and the politics that they're looking at, you get a fresh view of, 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 the, of the area that you're living in. And I think that's why it's proven really popular over the years. So, um, yeah, so, so we've been teaching that for, for a very long time. Um, and then about five years ago, I was approached by a brilliant charity called Classics for All um to see whether i'd be interested in in leading some type of latin provision in the, in the blackpool area um, and and from that we've, we've sort of grown the nine schools now in blackpool that are offering some type of sort of latin so that's secondary uh, and primaries secondary, secondary and primary yeah yeah yes brilliant yeah so it, it's been um it, it's, it's been really fantastic just to see how popular the subject as a whole is but also uh the relevance of it and the the amount of buy-in from local leaders once they've seen that it's not just uh you know life of brian and people wearing togas um <laughs> that there is a relevance to it. it it's really really been fantastic to see it grow yeah i mean um yeah i think it's uh I, I, all i remember is my brother um went to a grammar school and he learned i think he studied latin at uh at york university um and uh, for him, it was uh, it was all of this blee blah blue blah whatever it was, and, it, and he used to come back reciting all of this, and it meant for me it it you know it, it was in his school it was the thing you had to do there was no no option you know so it was no going away it wasn't you know he he had to he had to overcome it but one of the things that they it was very much about. Um, the, the speaking and writing of Latin, you know, they, I suspect they did do some of the sort of more interesting stuff, perhaps about the history of it, but, but it was very much around uh, as a language, you know. Um, so, so Peter, if I was, I mean, I am interested in in ancient history, but interested at a level that I'll watch something if it comes on Discovery Channel <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, sure. What would you, what book would you direct me to to say? Read this, and this will get you into, let's say, ancient Greece and and the what was going on at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had a really great discussion actually about that. Um, it must have been about about two years ago, um, and Radio Five actually rang up. Uh, I think it was two two three years ago, and um, Danny Dyer had um, brought out a TV series on the Tudors. I think it was Henry the Eighth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Radio 5 had, had, had got myself and a couple of academics um, to participate. I think it was a drive time show. Uh, and they were asking us about the merits of Danny Dyer's Tudor's um, uh, sort of series. And I hadn't seen it. And there, there, was, there was one academic and he was very much belittling it, saying, oh, well, you can't possibly do this because X, Y and Z is not going to be right. Um, and it's going to be inaccurate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, though, I, I, I sort of threw a grenade in the argument from my point of view, because I, I, I think that sort of popular history and even historical fiction is actually really, really, really incredible. It's that little doorway into something mm. that you might not have considered before. So we'll get students, for instance, and, and they've watched Gladiator or they've watched 300 or they've watched Troy. And, and obviously, you know, when you're looking at something like 
like those big Hollywood films, historically speaking, they're, they're all over the show, you know, in, in mm. terms of the actual accuracy of it. But if it gets someone interested and curious in that period, um, then I think there's a, there's a real value for it. I mean, you know, don't, don't, don't ask me to talk about Gladiator. I'll go off on a rambling for about three hours about <laughs> the inaccuracies of Gladiator. But if it gets someone interested in something and it makes them even just do that little, you know, I know we attack Google and Wikipedia as, as academics, but if it gets them to do that first little bit of, int- you know, that little bit of yeah. research, I think there can be real value there. So I think if you look in ancient, ancient Greece, you've got some brilliant, obviously modern historians, people like Bethany Hughes and Michael Scott that do some fantastic documentaries for the, for the mainstream um, viewer. But then equally, there's some brilliant historical fiction uh, that's been, uh, that's been produced. I love the Robert Harris trilogy uh where he was looking at cicero i mean that that's 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 brilliant i remember my dad saying oh have a read of this and i thought dad come on i've studied cicero for like 15 20 years there's nothing going to be new here but it was brilliant it was so well written it was excellent really really fantastic so i think historical fiction um obviously modern day uh documentaries but then obviously nothing i think can beat reading the actual Right, source. Right. Uh, it's, so I think, you know, if, if, if you're looking at um, uh, ancient Greece, you're never going to go far wrong in reading a, a, a good translation of a Herodotus, who's just brilliant. He, he, he takes you on a travel guide of the ancient world, you know, yeah. all the way from Persia to Egypt. So how accessible is that? Wars. How accessible um, is that, Peter? How accessible is it? Is it relatively, you know, for a, a novice yeah. like me? I think I think for a novice, um, something like a Herodotus or or, or a Plutarch are, are, are really 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 accessible. Plutarch is my absolute favourite classical writer because he writes these little bite-sized biographies of who he thinks are sort of the superstars of ancient history. Right. And you get and you get a copy of Plutarch's Fall of the Republic for about you know three quid on amazon or something and you've got these brilliant little biographies of of all of these key greek and roman figures uh suetonius as well really accessible um and and that's the brilliant uh thing when you're introducing students to these writers um you know especially as a teacher if you're looking at the vocabulary and you're looking at the sort of the the literacy challenges that students are likely to face when you're looking at that 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 type of work but with sort of careful scaffolding and with the introduction uh of, of sort of key terms and terminology and, and the language that they're encountering a student can really enjoy reading plutarch or suetonius just as much as you can harry potter and incidentally there's so much latin in harry potter as well so all right well okay well that, that's fantastic um really interesting I, and that's a first for us done isn't it to have a yeah a chat about the teaching of latin um uh Right. Well, it's been a very interesting week. Uh, it, it, it's, it, I mean, we've said all along since we started this, that unfortunately it's the government that keeps on giving. Um, and there've been a number of events that have happened over the last uh, week or so, including the, um, the prime minister asking or telling, um, the chairman of the conservative party, um, to stand down. And, uh, so, so that has now happened. Um, and so it's just, uh, and there are a number of other things rumbling along, um, which may may become part of this discussion. You never know. So, Stan, uh, what's caught your eye this week? Well, one that I think might be of interest, and it'll probably affirm thoughts in a number of schools, uh, in that the Southampton University have done a, a review of, 
I think it's 35,000 inspections. And one of the conclusions is in primary schools that female lead inspectors are more harsh than male lead inspectors when it comes to overall judgments. Um, and neither are as harsh as HMI. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it strikes me that I've actually just sent an email to say, have they taken into consideration the gender of the head teacher and does that have an impact? Mm. Or is it just, you know, their view that these are harsher decisions based on a harsher judgment? Um, but it, there'll be a lot of schools saying, aha, <laughs> that's what went wrong with our inspection. We should have had a, a male or we should have had a female. So it, it's just, I think what struck me was I, I expected it to say somewhere along the lines, you know, but you know, our research has so many flaws that we can't, but it actually says this is significant because it's, I think it's something like just over 3%. Yeah. Uh, more more harshly judged and and that of 35,000 is obviously quite quite a significant number did you so, uh, did it talk about the hmis the male female hmis no it didn't it just it just grouped hmi i think i've not obviously i've not read the full report i've only read a summary yeah. but it, but it said neither were as harsh well when they say as harsh as likely to put a school into uh, inadequate um than an ofsted HMI was. They they call them Ofsted inspectors and HMIs. Mm -hmm. That's the differentiation. Um, But it's it's interesting. And and I think, I don't know, my experience is it's the relationship that's the important part between the head and the lead inspector and where that is positive. I'm not saying it it affects the outcome, the final judgments, but it does affect the, the nuances. It affects how the inspection takes place in mm. school. And I think to some extent that the language of the report is influenced by that that report, that sorry, that relationship, the rapport between the, the head and, and the lead inspector. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think my I mean I've done a lot as you know, as you know, but of inspections. But actually I think um it it it's very interesting uh, and it's so much more challenging when you don't hit it off and and it and actually it's it takes you about five minutes to work out whether you're going to hit it off you know the, mm. the first five minutes of those not just on the phone but just a face-to-face discussion is pretty critical so I think that I for one um never went in thinking oh, I want this to be awful <laughs> you know but actually there were it, it, it could quickly get into a, a downward tailspin from that very first conversation, you know. Yeah. I, I think... I've always said to, to schools when we've done any training on inspections that that first phone call is absolutely crucial. Mm. You were there, Frank, when I took a phone call, the first inspection we did together, where at nine o'clock I rang the school and the secretary <laughs> said, I said, can I speak to the head? And they said, oh, he's not in yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, well, what time is he likely to be in? Oh, any time in the next five or ten minutes. <laughs> Wasn't there one also that said, oh, he never comes in on a Tuesday before <laughs> half nine or something because he's got his DJ set the night before? Something like that. Um, some of them are less obvious, though, aren't they? About it, It's really also about the, the, the willingness of a senior leader to be open with the inspector. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I actually give credit when... Um, head teachers say things like, 
well, I, I think you're going to find this. You know, it's yeah. not where it ought to be. You know, just putting it like that. Whereas the worst thing is, I mean, you, you, you have your chat, everything seems fine. And then within the next 10 minutes, you find the stuff that they should have told you wasn't going yeah. very well. So I think it's all just that sort of, uh, I know it's got to be yeah. got to be careful how much you reveal, but actually I do think a level of openness on the obvious things is really important. Yeah. Um, well, I told you that uh, one of my inspections, the head said, I've I've written what I think the outcome should be on an envelope. It's in my desk, and at the end of the inspection, I'll share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, Peter, what's caught your eye this week? Uh, yeah, um, I picked out uh, Alan Cumming uh, returning his OBE, uh, which I thought was really, uh, really, really quite interesting. And in particular, um, his justification for returning his, his, his OBE and the reference that he made to the British Empire uh, mm-hmm. in it, which I thought was really, really interesting. He said um, about the conversations about the role of the monarchy after the death of the Queen, and especially the way the British Empire profited at the expense and death of indigenous peoples. So as, as a historian, that, that automatically made me quite, you know, got, got me interested because there is that debate about the legacy of, of the British Empire um, that's, that's still very current in education as to what we actually teach in history and what is on a national curriculum and what is on uh, a, a GCSE and the and the and the different sides of of that debate of of the British Empire and 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 you know the the impacts that it that it unquestionably had, um, and the reason why it got me really was not really to get into a complex debate about the British Empire and its legacy, but for me as a classicist uh, and as someone who loves the languages, I, I thought it was really fascinating about the use of that word empire and the toxicity of that, that word. Mm. And it, it sort of got, got me thinking about how we, we viewed empire sort of historically. And, and, you know, certainly you could make the argument that sort of pre-World War I, um, a lot of um, classicists would view the Roman Empire as a very positive you know, brilliant, brilliant thing. And then post-World War I, World War II, you've got this massive revisionist view of the Roman Empire. So on the one hand, it, it got me really interested and I thought, you know, that there was the connections there with, with how we as a country have interpreted empire based on our experiences and the context of which our histories are written. But then equally, these debates have already been been had <laughs> two, two and a half thousand years ago. So, um, you know, my students, we've, we've just been looking at a period of Greek history that's dominated by the Athenians and Athens is always viewed as a goodie because of its role in stopping the Persians from invading Greece and as the world's first democracy. So it's always got that label as a goodie. But then when you actually study what the Athenians do, they turn an anti-Persian alliance, the UN, into their own empire and incredibly brutal to anybody that's wanting to leave there. And and so my students, they they were reading um, uh, a historian, Thucydides, who's a contemporary to events, and he's discussing in the mouth of a uh, of a Sicilian chap about how brutal uh, the Athenians are and uh, and how the legacy of their empire is enslaved fellow Greeks um, <laughs> and then, then similarly there's there's other Roman writers that play around with that concept even when the Roman Empire is at its height so 500 years after the Greeks you've got writers like Tacitus 
who are very much saying 2000 years ago, the same type of rhetoric that we hear being discussed about the negativity of empire. There's a, there's a brilliant scene um, in when he's talking about Agricola, who is his father-in-law, but he's a guy who's conquered big chunks of um, Britain, in Scotland in particular. And just before this massive battle between uh, the, 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 the barbarian groups and the Roman forces, the leader of the, uh, uh, of, of the barbarian group stands for, and he, say, he says a very famous, um, famous speech, and there's a brilliant line in it. And he says, they make it a desert and call it peace. Um, and, and again, yeah, it, it just sort of shows the cyclical nature, or Thucydides would say that as well, the cyclical nature of human events and human interpretation of events. And again, this issue of empire, we think we're quite unique in having that debate and having that discussion. But in actual fact, if we just trawl through our history, we'll see that we're not the first people to have to deal with such a tricky legacy. And that, and that got me really thinking about that. Yeah. Well, I think it's today the uh, the Australians have announced that they're not going to have the uh, King Charles's head on the notes anymore. Yes. So yeah. that's, uh, and that's been said that that's a a, a positive decolonization. I, I I don't I don't understand the terms if I'm honest. Um, but they were they were going to reflect indigenous population rather than than the, mm-hmm. the monarch. So it's. It's a day for talking empire and commonwealth. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a shame that the the, the award, um, like in I think in France, isn't it the the government or the in effect the country award um, individuals um, and not just French individuals, but you know world leaders and whatever, um, you know with a with a, an honor and and it's a shame in a way that the country can't do that. It, it it's still got this. It does seem a bit. Uh, old hat isn't it the OBE MBE type thing you know when actually it'd be very easy just to to morph it into you know a, a yeah. more national award um, rather than one that's bestowed in effect through the king or queen you know um but, an awful lot of I bet your family that. didn't say that Frank when you got yours no <laughs> I actually I have to say yeah I have, I have to, to say, have this here. <laughs> I know. the thing is, is that um, I, I, don't, I think I've spoken about this before, but um, and it's quite sort of relevant, I think, today uh, and my brother. Um, but um, when when that when a letter came about that, I, I, my immediate thought was, I'm not comfortable with this. And but then it was this sense of um, my mother and father had died, and I know that my mother particularly who's born in Ireland in a little village in Palace Green, came over here as a 15-year-old chambermaid, would have been absolutely over the moon. You know, this would, and my father um, would have thought it was amazing. And and in a way it was, it was because of that. And also the feeling that I think I was nominated by uh, the cooperative group and, and who I was still sort of connected with. And I'm thinking, well, you know, how, how do I turn that round? You know, I mean, and and my family were really, were really honoured. You know, probably more than I was, to be honest, to attend. You know, Buckingham Palace to meet the king, get the award. But it was, it, it still troubles me because I listened to um, Alistair Campbell on his podcast, and on a number of occasions, I'm running around the streets of Cheadle Hume listening to the podcast, 
and he's talking about you know we really ought to get rid of these awards and and, and i sympathize with the argument he's putting forward but still i've got this sort of like lump of lead over here which is the family and all that sort of stuff and i can't can't get rid of it so it's really difficult and, and it's in a way it's the um and that's why i i try and push for more of a, a, a national award one that's not necessarily linked into the king or queen um but we are where we are with this at the moment um um right uh what's caught my eye two two things um we've had a um we've had a, a minister um reluctantly or being told at the weekend that they have to stand down and uh i don't know if you managed to read the uh letter that the minister or former minister wrote but there was very little contrition in it <laughs> it was as if you know i mean and i think that there is something here about how individuals lose confidence um with the people that they're working with and i find it quite remarkable that in politics you can in effect have most of your party not behind you but as long as you've got enough support in in the cabinet or in the top table you can survive for a very very long time now i don't think that's the case in education uh, i think we've said before you know you've got to when a senior leader stands up in front of their staff you've got to have a feeling that the majority are with me here it may even be a challenging position we've got to move to or move to get to but yeah. there's a sense of yeah I, I i trust what you're about i i feel as though you're you know um I, i'll come with you on this you know uh, it's it's completely different in politics to what it is in education. And uh, in some respects, I wish it was a little bit more of the education element within politics, you know, um, because I think in in education, you have to, as a leader, you have to look for, you have to open uh, discussion, you have to open dialogue with people to get yourself to a position where you feel as though you can take your the majority of your staff forward. And that does require a bit of give and take on both sides. Um, and it feels as though the government's got themselves into a right pickle over, you know, s standing up and st uh, alongside people that probably they shouldn't, they should really not be supporting. But also with regard to the strike action that we've had this week, you know, there needs to be some little bit of movement on both sides to find a compromise. So I think it's just about that, that the way that that was, that minister was dismissed, the manner it was done it probably reflects a lot of other things within the government where probably a little bit more movement around the place and getting to know what other people's views are and trying to give ground would be helpful. Yeah. So it's about, I mean, when you would compare it to, to a school, making sure you've got enough people on side often changes your view when you're going through that process of negotiating, finding out what people think. And it's very easy for somebody to, to, to give you a really coherent argument to say, actually, you might not be right with where you're going. And and I find then that that influences me and, and I'll step back a bit and think, am I really doing this? I had a, a chair of governors who was absolutely brilliant, let me say, but he used to come in and say, well, what do you want from this meeting? What what yes. would you like this decision to, to be? And I'd say what it was. And then once we were in a meeting with the governors, and the governors in, in conversation came up with a, a rational argument to do something different. And so I said, yeah, OK, I, I think you're right. Let's go with that. The next day, the chair of governors nearly knocked the door off my office as he barged <laughs> in and said, you will never do that to me again. If you <laughs> I decide the outcome of everything, that's what it's going to be. 
And I thought, wow, you know, for somebody who's who's always been able to to listen to to various sides of an argument and hopefully steer everybody to a, a place where we can all agree, that was like, wow, I've, I've yeah. never. And he, I have to say, he was a brilliant chair of governors, but part of it was because he'd come through committees. He was um, a local councillor. He knew how to manage committees. He knew how to manage meetings. And, and I was breaking the mould by, by <laughs> changing my mind during the meeting. <laughs> Peter, I mean, you mentioned there about local councillors. I mean, I don't know. You didn't mention before that you've recently become a local councillor. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I won a, I won a by-election in November. Um, so I've only got a five-month gig um, before the... Uh, the, the full elections in May. Um, but yeah, it was something I really wanted, I, I wanted to do for a very long time and um, get inside and, you know, in, get involved in that local side of politics. Um, and it's been fascinating, really fascinating. I, I, you know, it, it, it was a brilliant experience actually running in the election in the first place. And yeah, as I said to my wife on the, on the day of the actual election, I said, well, listen, even if I don't get it, uh, and I said, I think it'll be close. I said, even if I don't get it, it's been a brilliant, brilliant experience working with so many people, meeting so many different people. And then obviously I was lucky enough just about to get it. Um, and how how close was it? Oh, it was, uh, it was far, uh, well, about 35 votes in. So oh, wow. So right. It was very, it was, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it was uh, an opposition party ward. So it, so right. it was, it was okay. their seat. Yeah. Um, uh, so I always knew it was going to be close because I grew up in the ward and ever since being a, a kid and aware of politics, it had always been one that had swung sort of uh, both ways. And um, yeah, so, so I knew it was a close one, but um, it's, it's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it. So this week's been a particularly busy week because we've had we've had parents evening on a Tuesday. There was a full council meeting last night where I got in a little reference to Athenian democracy, which I was quite happy about. Um, and then, uh, and then there's a, there's another scrutiny uh, meeting tonight. So it's been brilliant though. I, I, I think the first time I was in the town hall, even though I grew up in the town uh, was when I actually went to, 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 to start, start the role. And it's just fabulous, brilliant building. Uh, do you, do, you do in local politics, do they do, like it, when you're elected as an MP, you you make your inaugural speech. Is it the same yeah. in local politics? No, I, I was really hoping that I would get to do uh, a maiden <laughs> speech, and I didn't. And I had so so much material for it as well. <laughs> I had, um, I you know, not to be a big geek, but I had big stacks of Cicero ready and uh, you know, all sorts to deploy, and I never got a chance to use it. So no, unfortunately, I didn't get to de- deliver a maiden speech. I'd have loved to. Um, but it, it, it's been a brilliant experience. It's really, really fabulous. And it's just, uh, um, it's great to see that that side of the council that I wasn't aware of, all of the unelected people and how hardworking they are and the challenges that they face. Um, and it's been really nice to make a real difference to, to the actual community as well and to be able to sort things out for people. And um, it's, been, it's been fabulous and brilliant. I suspect it'll be very tight again. But oh, right. Yeah. experience yeah. Really so it. so how often you know how often are people contacting you as their local councillor um you know how are you managing that yeah well i think in the first week i, I had quite a bumper set of emails I, I i've got a suspicion that some some were maybe set up to uh <laughs> test out test out the new lad 
Um, <laughs> but then since then, you know, it, it, it's been sort of fairly regular. Um, I've got a very understanding wife, uh, which is helpful. Um, so, you know, it has, it's mainly evenings where I get, get through stuff. Um, but so far, I mean, my, my, my two children are at the age where, you know, uh, they're, they're not, not young, young anymore. They're, yes. they're 15 and 10. So I've got a little bit more uh, time to be able to do do a bit of work every 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 night but um it's it's been a brilliant yeah brilliant experience really enjoyed it um and and fingers crossed for me that i don't get the uh, the big boot <laughs> <laughs> right well um we've reached the near the end of the chat uh at this stage peter we normally ask our guest uh to just let us know of one thing they'd like to introduce or or change in education that would improve the lives of the children and young people I don't know. Have you had a chance to think about what that might be? Oh, it's a tough one because it, it's tricky. Am I am I going and being stereotypical and making everyone learn ancient Greek or, or not? But um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm, I'm torn between two things. Uh, one thing that I'm torn between is is bringing modern foreign language learning a lot earlier in the system, because by the time that our students get to proper uh, MFL lessons they're in year seven they're mm. maybe a little bit closed off to it and I really do think that if we introduced you know language learning in reception in year one I think that would be hugely beneficial some of the most exceptional students I've, I've had the privilege to teach have been students their English is their third language you know Polish yeah, or yeah, German is their yeah. first and second English yeah. is their third yeah but equally the the, the thing I'm going to go with and I think the easiest one to do uh, is a return to modular examination um, I really uh, passionately detest <laughs> linear exams. Yeah. Uh, I just think that the current system is a speed writing memory exercise with yeah. such a narrow definition of intelligence and that and we're, we're, we're basically attacking our children right from an early age with year six sats. My, yeah. my um, just a well, year, year, four, year four um, tables assessment. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, he, he was, he's doing his year six sats at the moment. And I consider myself a fairly literate person. I love my languages. I love my Latin, my Italian. Um, I read all of the time. And I was I, I got stumped on fronted adverbials, to be honest with yeah. you. And I, I, had to, I had to ask Alexa what a fronted adverbial was. <laughs> and, and I thought, this is madness. Why, why are they doing this? Um, but I think just... You know, life isn't linear, you know, in terms of, you know, life is a series of, you know, modular. I, I sound a bit like Forrest Gump now, don't I? But life is a series of modular examinations and assessments. And and the fact that they were making our students learn something for two or three years and then picking something out of a hat yeah. um, and then saying, well, if you don't know that, you're a failure and you don't know your stuff. Yeah. It's criminal. No, I um, think the, t- the don't timing you think this is also driven all this cognitive load theory, you know, I worry that people are looking at this now as as a, a new golden bullet for for education, but actually, it's only necessary if you're just testing people on the memory. Yeah, yeah. that's the outcome. You test on yeah. the memory, then all the stuff on knowledge accumulation and and remembering and all that is important. But if you just recognise that that may be not the best way to test children, yeah. then absolutely. All of that other stuff falls away. The, the, this is quite a good way of finishing this chat because if you remember, Stan, um, when we asked my brother um, mm. what would he 
put in room 101 he said an uh, end of course work uh, end of course uh, assessments tests and to go back to teach you know, much heavily based teacher assessment approach um because he's old enough to know to to reflect on what that was like you know uh when that was the main way in which they assessed when he was the head of english in north wales but um yeah so it's quite topical i think for me it's something i'm doing work with uh, rethinking assessment at the moment we had uh, dr james mannion on as a guest and he's driving quite a lot of work with a number of other academics uh, andy hodgkinson uh, uh, dr andy hodgkinson's another one um and in a way uh, recently i was asked can you give us five or six you know crazy things that children have to do in order to get their GCSEs or A-levels or whatever. So it was very easy to come up with some crazy things that they're doing. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm just reflecting on my brother again. Okay, so uh, thank you, Peter. It's been a great chat. Um, that was thank you for having love, me. I mean, I think, yeah, it, you can see why students, though, Peter, want to study your subject. <laughs> because yeah. you, you <laughs> make it so exciting um, and relevant. Um, and actually, as somebody who's never never taught, Latin, you know, never been taught Latin in my life, you know, it, it makes me feel as well, I want to go back and have a look at those books. I, I'm just thinking I might go and dig out, because I did buy it, Stephen Fry's book on, on the... Oh, yeah. oh, Mythos. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. <laughs> so, so uh, it, it's upstairs, brand spanking new, never, never <laughs> open, even though I was, I was certain I was going to read it. <laughs> right, well, um, next week um, we have Professor Mel Ainsco as our guest. Um, uh, Mel is uh, uh, a real strong sort of uh, advocate for collaboration and cooperation and also undertakes a lot of research in various European uh, and South American countries as well. So it'd be really interesting. Bit of a change from the uh, the Latin <laughs> aspect, but uh, nonetheless, it's going to be uh, an interesting chat. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. And thank you, Peter, for being our guest this thank week. Thank you, Peter. That was really good. Yeah. Thank you.